0: Here to live. Gonna... Okay. Yeah. So I
1: very cal- I I calculated the time. I decided when the day was. I went to sleep, and in the morning I woke up, and I thought I must have made a
0: mistake.
1: <laughs> but I didn't
0: you didn't it. realize it. You didn't realize it, but you were in heaven, and you've been with you've been in heaven with all of us all this time.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know about that, <laughs> but but it was. When I think about it, I think I didn't tell anybody. It was my, (laughs) and I just had faith that God would take care of me, period. I didn't, it was so strange, and I wish that I had a little bit more of that That now, (laughs) because having all the water over the dam, there's too much to think about.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. Anyway. That's an awesome story. Yeah. yeah, that's very much so yeah. So on to what we were discussing. But faith challenges reason. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean one of the nice things is I mean, I I enjoyed the way you put it when you said I only wish I had that faith, you know, that you had as a six year old. Because we carry so much with us, you know, between the time we're six and, you know, seventy or whatever. Sixth grade. That or sixth grade time, you know, that, involve, that involves so many experiences in which reason is central. I mean, we live in a natural world, and it it involves burdens and experiences and surprises and adventures, and, you know, all of that was missing when you, well, I mean, it, there wasn't much of it there when you were in sixth grade, but now, so it's, I, I'm laughing, I was laughing because I think God wanted you to have the fullness of things, that's why you're here, you know, that... Um, <coughs>
1: And he's still waiting for me to use my potential, <laughs> and I apologize, Lord, for that. I'm keep trying.
0: Fred, one of the things I wanted to say. Um, wow, well, um, I don't know how to. Mark just wrote a letter and said he's having trouble getting in. Uh huh. I don't know how to. Doc, can you call him quick here? Here it's four o five or sorry, it's four o five six one five eight three seven six. Tell him to go into His prophecy and click on the uh, join now. <coughs> Let's start. Any um, any prayer requests tonight? Besides, Mark? besides for one that. Our faith has strengthened um, all of us.
1: Robert said that I should call you and suggest that you go into the Lit Prophecy
0: website. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning at Mass. It was a joy to see Barbara walking the way she did. That's a gift that's a gift, Um, um, so let her know that part of the growth in her own faith depends on the way people respond to her and it was a joy to see her walking the way she did she's doing well Um, we were reminded in your words to us this morning that we are adopted um, um, by taking on our nature you made us adopted sons. You shared our nature with us and because you're God's Son, you joined us to Him as adopted kids. So, um, we're no longer orphans. Whatever whatever goes on in the world, you know, in in whatever way we're caught by the world and think we're sufficient and on our own and don't need you and um, without you, are or orphans, all of us. Yeah. So, um, how oh, good to be reminded <laughs> that you adopted us. You made us your children by adoption through Christ. Um, I ask for a blessing on all of us that we be strengthened in our faith pretty seriously. Um, that we understand our call is away from this world to give it up all the things that have formed us and move with you whatever your will be, whatever that will is. So strengthen us to have the courage and humility to do that, to not be afraid of what people will think, particularly in close circles, with good friends, in church, neighborhood, family, not to be afraid to stand with you, trusting that even if people are offended or disturbed by what we say, our whole frame of reference, the whole reason for being is in You. So strengthen us in that please. We are moving towards the end of our time together. Um, we'll be finishing up Chesterton and starting the Gospels on You. Um, um, let all that we're reading strengthen us in our efforts to grow in reason our natural gifts so that our faith will be yeah. richer, fuller by whatever we bring to it from this world. We offer these prayers. Yeah, you know, us, um, ask a blessing on those that we, whose needs we hold in our hearts, people who are struggling or have medical issues or difficulties, that, um, that you bless them. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> I don't know if you got the letter because I sent it late, but I I sent a a quick email just a few minutes before we went on with the uh, medieval ballads. They should be a part of your poetry packet. So, if and if you don't have it, don't worry about it. If you hand it, have it handy, you can follow it. But you don't need it. You can you can listen. You all know that it's more important to hear poetry than to read it so. It I wanted to get us back to the lyrics um, because we don't have much time left and they've been a major part of our work. I've got to give some serious thought because we don't have much time left. Um, I'm very seriously thinking about going back to Auden's Canonical Hours. Um, that was a heavy, hard poem. It may be maybe not the right note to end on, but I want, I want to take us back to the maybe some of the really good lyrics that we've read as we're closing out our work. But tonight I picked two lyrics from the medieval period because in so many ways they speak to issues that have been close to us for a long time, and they're close to Chesterton, even though they don't seem directly to connect with him. In the first one, Three Ravens, the poet is, is describing the death of a knight and the way that nature comes to um, help. Um, Chesterton loved fairy tales, um, and I'm, I want to come to that in a minute. But um, it seems to me, and he doesn't say this, but it's implied in much of what he does say, that one of the reasons he loves fairy tales is that in fairyland, you feel that there's this um, nature, or tie, this tie between man and nature, in fairyland that we've lost um, in our world. We, we have re- by, by mathematical abstractions, we tend to remove ourselves from concrete reality and live in concepts, abstractions, ideas. And one of the beauties of poetry, is, as you know, and uh, fairy tales, is they take us back to a concrete world. And in the second, uh, Timur Mortis, it's a reminder that we're going to die. Um, um, most of you out there are too young (laughs) Um, Barbara Barbara can join Suzanne and me in this because we're all um, but one of the one of the what to call it one of the principles of the church one of the stands that it takes in its catechetical mission is to constantly remind us of death Uh, memento mori remember death we're supposed to carry it. When we were talking about Scarlet Letter and I, I was reminding um, um, those of us here that um, that Hawthorne was presenting a group that saw itself as saved. It was all over. Um, they didn't have anything to worry about. I like, remember all the women who open the play when Hester comes out of the prison. They just, they're full of scorn. Um, she's a sinner. They're not. They've been saved. It's all done. It's all over. The church asks us to remember, memento mori, death is with us. And more importantly, or implied in that, is to not forget we're in sin. The f- The truth of that, the f- the fact that it's true, should not be a reason for despair. You know, the fact that we're in sin can cause us to despair. Chesterton knows he's in sin. He couldn't have written what he does if he didn't. He does not, he never despairs. You you can't read him without feeling that his fundamental attitude towards life is gratitude. It's a sense of humor, it's a gladness. Um, He's as well aware of sin as anybody in the world, anybody I've ever read. We are not to forget death or our sins. We are to carry them because if we don't, it makes us arrogant. It makes us self-righteous and judgmental. If we carry our sins, we should be able to identify with other people. Does that mean we just overlook sins in others? No, it does not. We're to hate sin, but always love the sinner. Do all we can to put sins away, but do it in a spirit of love. That's a hard thing to do. So the two poems um, in some ways speak directly to So much of what we've been doing, The Three Ravens and Timur Mortis. Okay? So the first one, The Three Ravens. With those comments, I'm just going to read and leave them on. I won't make any comments. You can think about the poems on your own. Okay. The Three Ravens. There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down, a down. Hey, down. Hey, down. There were three ravens on a tree with a down, down. Sorry, Mark's coming on. Mark!
3: Yes, I'm sorry. Having trouble with my regular laptop, and now I'm on my work laptop. So.
0: No, you're you're good. You've always been a pain in the rear, anyway. So we're used to it.
3: Exactly. At this point, now,
0: Mark, we just we just um, let me stop. Anybody you want to pray for, Mark? My mother. Your mom. Okay. Is that facetious? Do we do we say a prayer? No, 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 no. Okay. Pray that okay. You
3: for my father. That's, that's, that's
0: let's pick this up. I we let's. I don't want to lose you here. So, um, we are glad ag- again to return to our prayers. We are glad to be together for this time. Mm, especially good to see Mark. Glad he's here. We ask a special blessing on his mom and dad, and particularly his mother. Um, whatever whatever concerns Mark carries in his heart. Let his heart be quieted in faith, knowing that you're doing all that you can do. Um, um, Help answer his concerns. um, Watch over his mom. um, Help her in whatever direction Mark has on his mind in that prayer. We offer this prayer again in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Mark, we're doing... um, two poems, The Three Ravens and the, and timber Mortars, they're both in the medieval packet. But you, Oh good, okay, so let's start. First one, The Three Ravens. There were three ravens sat on a tree, down a down, hey down, hey down. There were three ravens sat on a tree, with a down, down, hey down, hey down. They were as black as they might be, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. The one of them, now, I'm not going to repeat the refrain each time, but if we had more time, it would, if I were doing a reading, I would, but for the sake of time, I'm, I'm not. But they should one, the refrain should be read after each stanza. The one of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? Um, down and down, he down, he down. There, um, down yonder, green field, there lies a knight slate under his shield, Down-a-down, down, he down, he down. His hounds, they lie down at his feet, So well they can their master keep, Down-a-down, down, he down, he down. His hawks, they fly so eagerly, There's no fowl dare him come nigh, Down-a-down, down, he down, a down. Down there comes a fallow doe, As great with young as she might go, Down-a-down, down, he down, he down. She lifted up his bloody head and kissed his wounds that were so red. Down a down he down he down. She got him up upon her back and carried him to earthen lake. Down a down he down he down. She buried him before the prime. She was dead herself ere even song time. Down a down he down he down. God send every gentleman such hawks, such hounds, and such a demon. Down and down eight down it's a beautiful song affirming the um, the pr- primary place that man has in creation according to God's plan everything in creation should serve him that all nature serves him that isn't modern that isn't the way modern man looks at nature but that was at the heart of the medieval view of man Fred did you have something oh just, just a question.
2: So with the down, dairy, 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 down, down. I, you know, my my medieval English is is faulty at best. What, what is that? God You know, theme. I mean, what is it alluding to?
0: God, if I know, um, do you know, Doug? I do not. Um,
2: it's it's repeated through the whole thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, and it's, yeah, with a down, dairy dairy down. Um, I mean, you could use either. Of the, I was taking the, the short one. Um.
1: Is it something like follow law? Say, Doug. Is it something like follow law? It's just, follow, I, I it's just syllables.
0: Oh, sorry. This is.
3: Well, according to the internet, it is a meaningless refrain or chorus in old songs.
0: Oh, Okay. So <laughs> it's always like follow-up. We don't know. I don't. Um, I'm not ready to. That's I'm not ready. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm not ready to listen to the internet right now. Um,
3: okay, is, it is a city in Northern Ireland.
2: Well, I, I, I didn't mean to drag us out. I just was curious.
0: Came on you. Really, I, I didn't even have this. My goodness, three.
2: Oh, that's okay
0: we can do it next week oh, wow three ravens
2: that's okay we can come back to
0: it later yeah I think what I'm gonna do um Fred is um, I've got to look this up in when well, it's just it's been so long since I've looked at this um no worries oh here 86 um let me just take a minute and I'm not sure this will have an, have an answer, and if it, if it does I'm not even sure that I'll be able because I don't, I don't trust the internet a lot. Um,
2: <laughs> well, we can come back to it next week. It's no big deal.
0: No, because I, I probably won't come back to it at all. Um, well, that's okay. Down it ah. down, hey, down, hey, down. I can't answer it, I, Fred. I don't know the answer. Um it may be just a like a, you know, falala. It's, but it's 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 so characteristic of the modern mind to speak in runes and and things like that that are have a buried meaning that's traditional and it goes back. But on, honestly, I can't say. You um, medieval mind. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You said it's so characteristic of the modern mind. Medieval. Mm-hmm. Um, let me do Timur mortars. In what estate soever I be, timor mortis, contribut me. Um, as I went on a merry morning, I heard a bird both weep and sing. This was the tenor of her talking. Timor mortis, contribut me. Um, death disturbs me. I asked that bird what she meant, I am a musket, both fair and gent, for dread of death I am all shent, timor mortis, conjurate me. When I shall die, know no day, what country or place, I cannot say, wherefore this song sing I may, timor mortis, contribut me. Jesu Christ, when he should die, to his Father he gan say, Father, he said in Trinity, timor mortis, contribut me. All Christian people behold and see this world is but a vanity and replete with necessity Timur mortis, contribut may. Wake I or sleep, eat or drink when I on my last end do think for great a fear my soul do shrink timor mortis, contribut may. God grant us grace him for to serve and be at our end when we serve and from the fiend he us preserve Timor Mortis, contribute me. Just go back to that the um, third from the last stanza. This world is but a vanity and replete with necessity. You know, it it the, the poem is very brief. The lines are very short, but they're profound in meaning. The world is a van- on one end, the world is a vanity. At the other, it's replete with necessity. Those things we can't escape. They're gonna be there. We there's certain things that are determined in our world. Um, we have to find a way of negotiating, navigating, you know, those things. Um, it's a lovely poem. Okay, let's... i get it, Doug. You go ahead, I got it. Let's get back to Chesterton. Um, we are going to cover Paradoxes and Eternal Revolution for sure tonight. And next week, um, I'd like to take the last two chapters of Orthodoxy and finish the, the book. So we've got our work cut out for us. Um, a couple of opening thoughts, just a, a couple of broad notions that I'd like everybody to keep in their mind as we go through this. Um, the first is that we left it, we left behind a chapter on Fairyland, um, and even though Chesterton doesn't quite put it this way, it seems to me one of the things that he's doing in um, The, the uh, um, Ethics of Elfland is um, not only drew introducing it because it, it gives us a contrast with the modern mind, because the modern mind is extremely rationalistic and enclosed in its own systems. Fairyland um, offers a view of the world that's very different. In fairyland, everything matters and things are different and new. Um, pumpkins can turn into coaches and mice into horses, you know, and um, men can um, plant beanstalks that will go up to the clouds. Everything means something, and um, in almost all f- fairy stories, it, um, the story makes it clear that there are consequences to what men do. There's a law in fairyland which says there's a, a law in our nature. Fairyland is a place of adventure and romance. Things happen because we can break laws. We can do things. We're not determined. That view is completely opposite to the modern view coming out of the sciences, that men are determined. We have no free will. Romance and adventure are illusions. Um, but one of the things that I, I think we should take away from that earlier chapter on on fairyland is this um when we enter fairyland we enter a world that's unbelievable to us it's unreal in some ways even even though every every fairy story every good fairy story points to a truth um and in some sense fairy the stories of fairyland are much closer to the events of Christ's life than any picture the modern man would give of our world. Because the modern mind typically rules out miracles. So the modern scientists, the modern mind for the most part, this isn't always true but as a generalization it's fairly true. It's becoming less and less true I think more and more scientists are turning to Christianity because they're realizing the two are not incompatible. But um, in Fairyland um, things happen that are unbelievable. And so much of what happened in Christ's life is unbelievable. It's like a fairy story. If any of you read the Gospels, I mean, I don't know, you know, when you've read scriptures last time, but certainly for me, I mean, I I may be out of place on this, but I've been reading scriptures uh, for the first time in a long time, and I'm just struck by how much of what Christ does is miraculous. And yet it takes an ordinary form. And what's striking to me, you know, if you're if you if you're a modern, you, the modern mind tends to be very skeptical. It doesn't believe in things. It has no reason to believe. If we're all product of forces over which we have no control, we, it's hard to believe anything anything What? Why believe anything? It doesn't fit with our modern notions of things. If you look at man on this planet, you think, what a strange creature he is. He's the shrunken image. He's just a little bit better than apes. Um, he creates this world and all this regularity and system trains going from, you know, from Chicago to New York on, on a time schedule and everything is mechanized and um, controlled and predictable. There's no place for anything unbelievable. So to introduce Christianity to a modern is, is to ask him to believe in something like fairy tales. Um, I hope everybody sees this because we live in r- worlds of such routine. They're so mechanistic. Everything's planned, everything's predicted. That's one of the aims of science, to find the laws of things, um, what's predictable so they can control them or work with them. When you read through scriptures, you can't, you can't read what goes on with Christ without being shocked at, uh, at almost every paragraph. A man holds out his hand and asks him to be healed. Somebody comes out of a tree invites him home. Somebody um, is thrashing about with demons. Christ walks on the water, calms the storms. Um, what am I may leave uh, blasts a fig tree, curses it and it dies. Um, um he tell he sends the disciples out with the power to even um, cast out demons they come back and say they can't raising a question about their faith and he says um... these this kind requires more greater prayer greater fasting a greater faith and at one point he says um, unabashedly abs- severely what's the matter with you guys? I mean he does that a number of times with the disciples how long do I have to put up with you? Well, you, you have a little faith Faith, faith could move mountains. Um, I just finished the end of Luke, where um, he's aware that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, destroyed, and he um, he says with some anger and some sense of an impending disaster, um, if you had faith, you could. Oh, he said, um, women will be in a situation where those of you who have children will wish you didn't. Those of you who are pregnant who wish you didn't, because your children will have their brains smashed on the rocks. You'll all lose this. Mountains will crush you, hills will flatten you. And the final line, the final line is um, um, if this is what it's like when it's green, what's it gonna be like when it's dry? Because so much in their world is okay but they're on the verge of some impending disaster and they have no clue how dark it's going to be. And I think by that he means those who reject him are going to be in a worse situation than those who accept him. And yet what's at stake in all of this is he keeps doing these things that make it hard to accept him because they're all miraculous. He's not like anything anybody's ever seen before. So, I don't think it's just Elfland. I, I think it's also that things go on in Elfland that are hard to believe. And if you read scripture and watch Christ, so much goes on that's stunning. It's almost inhuman. He's doing things that nobody else does. He goes home. He can't perform miracles because the people there know him well and can't accept him as God. They have no faith. And so his miraculous powers are compromised. He can't do what he could do um, with people of faith. So what's at issue in so many of these chapters is Chesterton is, um, is looking at our modern world and, sh- and showing from the perspective of reason, he, he almost never appeals to faith. There's one exception. Fred knows it well. There's one exception. He, he makes no appeals to faith. Every one of his arguments arises out of some experience in the natural order where reason can work. He's using reason to argue against people who use reason in what is to his mind um, an irrational way of using it. So the the power of the whole of orthodoxy is that it's showing the great sources of rationality in Christianity itself. And I and I would go on to say that the Catholic Church is the only institution on the on the earth that um, makes a place for these extraordinary resources of reason, because they op- they make it possible to have a richer, healthier faith for those who care to bring them together. Insofar as the Protestant world has turned away from reason, it thinks that nature and our ra- our natural powers are corrupt. Mm. They move around that natural order. They, they can't move in it as well. Chesterton is so at home there. He loves the world, he sees the goodness of it, he's ready to affirm it. He's ready to argue at every point. The only place that he makes an appeal to reason and, or I mean to faith, and I start, that's not even an accurate way to put, as he said. the whole of this philosophy, everything that he's coming to that he drew from his experiences in the natural world, um, we're already there in the um, the Athanasian Creed. Apostles Creed. The Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. Um, so what it says, if we take him seriously, is that there is this good sense, there's a, 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 a an inherent good to man's rational powers, um, except we've lost them in the modern world. The Protestant has given them up on one end and the, the modern rationalist mind uses them in the wrong way on the other end because he denies, he uses reason to deny what's miraculous, what's unbelievable from their perspective. So it's one. I think it's one of the great um, evangelicals, not quite the word, but... Um, That's the word I'm looking for. It's apostolic in a way. He's taking the best of reason out into the world in in a way that makes it possible for people to move to Christianity. Um, Apologetic is the word that I... He's one of the great apologists of our time. Um, The great thing that he's done is he's taking things from the world and... revealing them in an odd way that people aren't used to, um, but in a way that makes an opening for um, um, Christianity. Okay, um, we've talked about the dangers of respectability, and Chesterton doesn't, he uses that word a number of times and he doesn't quite go at it the way we have, but I want to underline the importance of that um, because of everything he's saying. one of the great themes that ties all our works together um, is that in every almost every work we've read there is a figure who in modern terms would be an anti-hero. He stands outside of the world of his time. He's not a child of his time. Not Achilles, not Odysseus, not Chesterton, not Billy Budd. We can go on and you know, Ivan um, or Dmitri or Alyosha, Karamazov, wherever, wherever we go, we have been introduced to figures who stand who are not a product of their time. In some way they stand outside the respectable world because there's something wrong with that world. The very beginning, that was the great truth of the Iliad. All the men were acting under a flawed honor code. It's Achilles who steps outside of it and it's only when he does that that he learns that in some way he's connected with God and that something's going to be asked of him that's not going to be asked of other people. He's going to have to admit his sins, his failures, he let Patroclus down and accept his own death. When he goes back into the war nobody can stop him for the first time um, as long as they've been at war. Same thing with Odysseus. Odysseus stands outside of that conventional world and he brings something to his marriage nobody else can. Same thing with Aeneas. We can go on and on. I want to give you just examples from works that we've read just very, very briefly to to remind you just how central this thing is. One of the paradigms for me when I put this theme together is of the disciples after their conversion coming out of the temple um, in a spirit of joy. They just said things that none of the Pharisees or Sadducees or the you know, the um, non, uh, normative Jews um, could take easily. They said things they didn't want to hear. They said things that some people would have taken as insulting, just the way Christ did. How many priests, I'm saying this earnestly, how many priests can, will stand up in front of a congregation and say things they know are going to offend people. So over and over and over again, we've been given these pictures of individuals um, who struggle with disorders and find something wrong in a way that causes them to stand outside their world and do something that that world needs. That's probably been one of the most dominant themes running through, because the danger, in, and Chesterton's absolutely clear in this, the danger is that if you give into that world you stagnate Um, if you go the other extreme you can hurt it in the wrong way the real question is reform is always needed always that's the reason for the title eternal revolution we have to be eternally awake constantly on guard because if we're not we slip back into a world one way or another where it's easier not to do hard things I want to just give you a couple of examples from the works that we've read recently. In, in Hamlet, after remember after the mousetrap play when Hamlet has the players put on that scene to test the king and realizes from the king's reaction that the, the, the ghost was right, the king's guilty. And it's then that he decides to kill Claudius and remember when he comes from that scene he sees Claudius at prayer decides not to kill him then because he would be sending him to heaven and that he didn't want to do that. He goes to his mother's chamber and he he just um, tears her apart. He tells her um, how bad she's been, what a not good thing she's done. He, He reduces her to tears and grief and he hears the noise and he thinks it's Claudius and takes out a spear and runs his spear through and it turns out to be Polonius. You all remember that, right? He kills Polonius, thinking that it's Claudius. Um, shortly after that, he says these words. Confess to his mother. Polonius is dead, that he and his mother are alone. Confess yourself to heaven. Repent what's past. Avoid what's to come. Do not spread the compost on the weeds by your filthy axe. Um, you know, um, feed Claudius' as evil. To make them rancor, forgive me this my. V- Here's the lines I wanted you to remember: "Forgive me this my virtue, forgive me this my virtue, for in the fatness of these Percy times, virtue itself a vice must pardon beg. To do something good puts him in this position of seeming to do something that's a vice. To do something wrong." Because remember, he's totally outside of his world. He cannot act by who, who's he going to turn to? Who can he trust? He cannot act according to the conventional rules of that world, and still carry out his quest. A few moments later he says, I do repent, but heaven hath pleased it so he's he's pulling polonius's body out of the closet and says, I do he's looking at him, he's just killed him. I do repent, but heaven hath pleased it so to punish me with this and this with me that I must be their scourge and minister. I will bestow him and will answer well the death I gave him." He's, he's holding himself accountable to a death he didn't intend. So again, good night. I must be cruel only to be kind. Thus bad begins and worse remains behind. I must be cruel only to be kind. How many times have martyrs been accused of doing something wrong And being killed for it. Socrates, Thomas More, Christ himself. One of the great ironies, I mean I felt it keenly this time as I was reading the end of um, Luke. Pilate says to the men, the Jews and the Gentiles both, he says, I find nothing wrong with this man. He's innocent. I'm gonna let him go. Pilate says he's innocent. He's clear. He's done an investigation. He can find no wrong. He said he's an innocent man. And the crowd says, crucify him, crucify him. Somebody says something about Barabbas. Barabbas is a killer. He's murdered somebody. He deserves to die. They say, turn Barabbas loose, who's not innocent, so they can kill an innocent man. That's how out of tune the world is. How many people have the courage to stand up and do something that's not going to be liked by the people around them. And that doesn't mean just being stupid and adversarial. It means following Christ, because to follow him means doing things that the world's not going to like. We saw the same sort of problem in Scarlet Letter. People hated Hester because she was in sin. Um, Remember Hawthorne looks at The way he treats everything is from that perspective that he and Melville shared what the two of them called the brotherhood of sin. All human beings are in sin. For those Puritans to act like they were without sin, that they were saved and condemned others, was horrendous. Remember what Father um, Zosima said and Brothers Karamazov. It's only when you acknowledge that you're the worst of the worst, and he encouraged all of his followers, to stand in the world that way. It's only when you know that you're the worst of the worst that you can actually begin to love people as you should. Melville, Moby Dick, in the opening Moby Dick, the whole opening was a critique of that Protestant respectable culture. They were all living for themselves, making money, and not seeing how much they were ignoring. Um, Faulkner's The Town, another one. Remember when um, Montgomery Ward was running that light show in the back of his office, his, his uh, store. And Gavin and the sheriff were going to arrest him and, and Montgomery Ward would have given up all the respectable citizens who were attending. It would have just ruined, uh, it would have ruined the town. Their whole their whole code of respectability would have been called in question. Just like the code of respectability of the Puritans in Scarlet Letter. If Dimmesdale had confessed his sin when he was their minister, um, it would have shattered their notions, and he would have been exiled. And remember, it was shortly after that, that they had the witch trials. So there's this great danger and respectability of moving with the world. Um, the great gift of Chesterton is that he presents the disorders, but he does it so humorously. I mean, he just has this wonderful sense of humor. He can lay things bare, show what's wrong, and love them. It's, it from In my mind, it's one of the things that makes this one of the greatest works of the 20th century. Okay, let me stop with those just brief introductory comments, and I'll, I want to look at uh, paradoxes of Christianity. But for any comments on my opening, opening thoughts or reflections, Christ's call is not easy. The danger is that we can get comfortable and slip into something. And The title of the next essay is Eternal Revolution. The argument that he's going to make is we have to be constantly on watch. This is the church. Constantly on watch, constantly vigilant. Because if we're not, the tendency in our human nature is to constantly slip back. Constantly slip back. That's true of us personally, it's true of our social world. Remember, Flannery O'Connor's term was, the world is under construction. Grace and evil meet. At that point where they meet, the world is under construction. Grace is doing something to, to disrupt our lives, to make things hard, to keep us from becoming complacent. To take us back when we were in the sixth grade, no thoughts or comments on my Barbara go ahead you've got something come on
1: well I don't know if, when you said um, you were talking about faith and and fairy tales um, I'm a cradle catholic um, but and I never stopped going to church but there was a long time I don't know how many years when Christianity seemed like a fairy tale it, it really did yeah. I thought it many times I thought here I am here I am praying here I am going to church here I am trying to do the right thing and I don't know why because it seems like a fairy tale yep and so that resonated with me and I remember at one point, thinking, okay, <laughs> the only thing I can do is make up my mind um, to belong to God. Yeah. And and over the years, that turned out to be what I needed, but I have no idea where that came from or why. But the fairy tale thing really does, it reminds me of where I've been. Yeah.
0: I think it's so yeah. true, Barbara. I'm glad you said it. I'm genuinely glad. Um, if you stand in the world and look at the world, and it's no wonder they hate Christ. I mean, because he, what he does calls into question everything the world does. But if you stand in that world, you have praying, trusting to God, or you know, or loving somebody when you shouldn't, or having hope when you shouldn't, or um, all of that's not reasonable. Um it's a stunning. I mean, I, I I certainly feel that strongly now, just having gone through Luke, just um, aware of again and again and again and again how much of what he does um, is is unbelievable and upset and upsetting to the Jewish community, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees, they they're just outraged because, you know. Um, uh, when he when he heals the the cripple and says which is it easier to do to forgive sins or heal a man and, and um he and he heals him to show that he was correct in saying you're forgiven the pharisees response was nobody can do that except god you've just blasphemed. they could not believe i mean that's what's stunning to me it's so easy to think it's so easy to think that what they did was reasonable because nobody could do those things. Only, only God could. And here's a man doing it? That guy should be ashamed of himself. So it's easy to see why they'd be as outraged as they were. The, the difficulty is, they had evidence in front of them all the time. You know, he healed the healed man with a leper, or the withered hand, or the lepers, or the blind man, or the deaf man, or, God, or I mean, he just walked on water, calmed the storms. Um, all the people kept coming to him because he was healing them and they experienced his healing. And not only that, they heard the wisdom in his stories, his parables or in the, in the Beatitudes on the Mount, you know, who spoke like that? So it's not like as if they didn't have any evidence. It's say they, they were so caught in the world of their time that believing in those things, they could not believe in what seemed unbelievable, even though he was doing them. So there's a whole miraculous element that that Christ introduced into the world that so often the world doesn't not uh, allow for. Um, that's the major i think that's the major concern that Chesterton have he, he's not going at it the way I am right now, but you know, in every one of his chapters he's he's taking on a world that denies the supernatural, the, what's unbelievable, the miraculous or what's outside this small circle. Um, Okay, let's, let me, let me just briefly um, um, I want to pick up one principle from the flag of the world and then get on to paradoxes of Christianity. Remember in flag of the world he began by setting off the optimist and the pessimist and thinking there were only two alternatives. You could either be a pessimist and focus on what was wrong or bad in the world, or an optimist, and focus on the good things. And he came to some point where he realized that both of those attitudes, those perspectives, were flawed. There was something wrong with each of them. On page two, or in the Flag of the World section, in in a paragraph towards the end, he says, "Um, On the other side, our idealist pessimists were represented by the old remnant of the Stoics. Marcus Aurelius and his friends had really given up the idea of any God in the universe and looked only to the God within. They had no hope of any virtue in nature and hardly any hope of any virtue in society. They had not enough interest in the outer world really to wreck or revolutionize it. That's been his theme through this whole chapter. You have to be dissatisfied with something enough to want to change it, and, no, to, to not be happy with it, and love it enough to change it and change it in the right way, um, which which may mean a revolution or something hard or difficult for people. They had not enough interest in the outer world really to wreck or revolutionize. They did not love the city enough to set fire to it. But, and Remember Christ said, I came with a sword to divide, I came to set a fire. Conflagration. How much does our love of respectability, and I'm harping on that tonight because America has reached a point of s- such affluence and such stability. I think, we're on the, I think we're on the verge of a revolution because of what's going on. But we've reached a point of such comfort and wealth that it's, it's made certain people comfortable and other people outraged. We really are reaching a point of crisis. Thus, the ancient world was exactly in our own desolate dilemma. This isn't new. It's happened again and again. The only people who really enjoyed this world were busy breaking it up and the virtuous people did not care enough about them to knock them down. In this dilemma, the same as our own, let me repeat the phrase, the only people who really enjoyed the world were busy breaking it up. Those were all the reformers. Think about Benedict, Francis, Dominic, you know, all the great reformers. Think about Dante as a poet, or Virgil as a poet in his time, Um, Hawthorne, Melville. In this dilemma, the same as ours, Christianity suddenly stepped in and offered a singular answer which the world eventually accepted as the answer. It was the answer then and I think it's the answer now. This answer was like the slash of a sword it sundered. It did not in any sense sentimentally unite, briefly it divided God from the cosmos. That transcendence and distinctness of the deity which some Christians now want to remove from Christianity was really the only reason why anyone wanted to be a Christian. It was the sense that God separated Himself from His um, creation. But it was because of that separation that it made it difficult for people to f- see this as their home. Because every inclination to see it as our home made it, we would either become a pessimist or an optimist. And neither one of them was adequate to the problems the world presented in every age. It was this prime philosophic principle of Christianity that this divorce in the divine act of making was the true description of the act whereby the absolute energy made the world. According to most philosophers, God, in making the world, enslaved it. According to Christianity, he making it, he set it free. So he went on struggling with these things, and then he said, and then followed an experience impossible to describe. It was as if I'd been blundering about since my birth with two huge and unmanageable machines of different shapes and without apparent connection the world and the Christian tradition. They seemed to be so at odds. I had found this hole in the world, the fact that one must somehow find a way of loving the world without trusting it. Somehow must love the world without being worldly. I found this projecting feature of Christian theology like a sort of hard spike. The dogmatic insistence that God was personal and had made a world separate from Himself the spike of dogma exactly fitted into the whole of the world. So this hole that had been a source of emptiness or dissatisfaction was suddenly filled. But the important matter was this, that it entirely reversed the reason for optimism, and the instant that reversal was made, it felt like an abrupt ease when a bone is put back in a saga. I had often called myself to optimist to avoid the too evident blasphemy of pessimism, but all the optimism of the age had been false and disheartening for this reason, that it had always been trying to prove that we fit into the world. If we can only do this, we'll be at home. The Christian, the Christian optimism is based on the fact that we do not fit into the world. I tried to be happy by telling myself that the man is an animal, like any other which sought its meat from God, but now I really was happy, for I had learnt that man is a monstrosity. I had been right in feeling all things as odd, for I myself was once worse and better than all things. He knew he's not as good as other people and better than. The optimist pleasure was prosaic, for it dwelt on the, natu- the naturalness of everything. The Christian pleasure was poetic, for it dwelt on the unnaturalness of everything in the light of the supernatural. The modern philosophy had told me again and again that I was in the right place, and I'd felt depressed even in acquiescence but I heard that I was in the wrong place and my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. The knowledge found out and illuminated forgotten chambers in the dark house of infancy. I knew not why grass had always seemed to me queer as the green beard of a giant and why I could feel homesick at home. Now he knew this was not his home. Christ said, Son of man has no place to lay his head. This is not his home. His whole purpose is to help us make this journey from this world to his that is to return home that's Dante's whole journey um, um let me go on unless there's any questions brief brief questions i want to get to the paradoxes and uh, um eternal revolution but any Remember the whole point of Flag of the World was that he said we're born into the world um, but we owe an allegiance to it before we can ever be critical of it. We owe it a faith, a something, an obligation, a gratitude um, to be happy with it. Whatever difficulties are going on, this is not our home. Um, so it, it should color whatever we do with it. You know. Okay. 6. The paradoxes of Christianity. The real trouble with the world of ours is not that it's an unreasonable world, nor even that it's a reasonable one. <laughs> this is one of the best paragraphs I think I've ever read in my life. The commonest kind of trouble is that it's nearly, it's nearly reasonable, but not quite. Life is not an illogicality, yet it is a trap for logicians. It looks just a little more mathematical and regular than it is. Its exactitude is obvious, but its inexactitude is hidden. Its wildness lies in wait. <laughs> Go down on the if you're on that the first page of chapter six. It's this silent swerving from accuracy by an inch that is the uncanny element in everything. It seems a sort of secret treason in the universe. Just when we think we've got everything mapped out and we've got everything under control, and we see things, something will knock us off our feet and make us realize that you know the, that we miss something. And the next page he says, "Now this is um, now this is exactly the claim which I have since come to propound for Christianity. Not merely that it deduces logical truths, but that when suddenly it becomes suddenly illogical, it is found, so to speak." an illogical truth. It not only goes right about things, but it goes wrong, if I may say so, exactly where things go wrong. He's not saying the church goes wrong, but he is saying that it makes a place for what seems wrong. What the world can't explain, the church makes a place for. Its plan suits the secret irregularities and expects the unexpected. It is simple about the simple truth but it is stubborn about the subtle truth. It will admit that a man has two hands. It will admit um, the obvious deduction that he has two hearts. Um, It is my only purpose in this chapter to point (coughs) this out to show that whenever we feel there is something odd in Christian theology, we shall um, generally find that there is something odd in the truth. And that's because the church holds on to the central mystery of history. And it is that a God entered time and changed everything. He says, "Um, if it's right at all, it is a compliment to say that it's elaborately right. A stick might fit in a hole or a stone in a hollow by accident. But a key and a lock are both complex. And if a key fits a lock, you know it's the right key. There's this great complexity to the world. Only the church has the key for it that's the sign that it matches that complexity, it picks it up. Um, It is um, is it's clear-sighted about what's simple and it makes a place for what's complex. If you've ever read, say, St. Thomas's Doctrine on the Trinity you'll see just how complex it gets. Um, A few pages in, he says that as he was growing up, as a boy, he kept hearing about all these strange things dealing with Christianity. Um, And it alienated him from Christianity. He didn't want to have anything to do with it because all these theories made it clear to him that something was wrong with Christianity. Um, And then he started realizing that all these critics were saying things that contradict each other. He said it was like one man's saying of another man that that man is too short only because that man's tall. And another man who's really short, saying of the short man that he's really tall because he's short. And he began to see that there was something to their contradictions that said more about them than the Christian religion that they were criticizing. But early on, it it left him with problems. He said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I was in a desperate way. He began reading these things and realizing there's something wrong and it made him begin to doubt all these skeptics, and it was a funny moment because he, you know, he was realizing that he was getting close to becoming a Christian and converting, and Christian and converting, and it was a strange uh, experiences you can imagine. So, in um, the next page, he he begins a list of examples of the sorts of things that he experienced that made it clear there was more wrong with the critics. Then there was wrong with Christianity. So he says in the paragraph, says, thus for instance I was much moved by the eloquent tack on Christianity as a thing of inhuman gloom for I thought and still think sincere pessimism the unpardonable sin still thinks pessimism is wrong um, and um, sincere pessimism the unpardonable sin insincere in pessimism is social accomplishment rather agreeable, that is some people just play at being dark Um, But if Christianity was, as these people said, a thing purely pessimistic and opposed to life, then I was quite prepared to blow up St. Paul's Cathedral. But the extraordinary thing is this. They did prove to me in chapter 1 that Christianity was too pessimistic, and then in chapter 2 they began to prove to me that it was a great deal too optimistic. So they kept giving all these examples of gloom and doom, and yet at the same time he was finding other examples of an extraordinary, exceptional kind of a joy. Um, um, One rational hardly done calling Christianity a nightmare before another began to call it a fool's paradise. This puzzled me, the charges seem inconsistent. Um, Here's another a few paragraphs below. Here's another case of the same kind. I felt that a strong case against Christianity lay in the charge that there is something timid and monkish and unmanly about all that's called Christian. Seems to encourage people to turn the other cheek. Um, Go down a few lines, but I read something very different. I turned the next page in my agnostic manual and my brain turned upside down. Now I find that I was to hate Christianity, not for fighting too little, but for fighting too much. Christianity, it seemed, was the mother of wars. Christianity had deluged the war with blood. I'd got thoroughly angry with the Christian because he never was angry. Now I was told to be angry with him because his anger had been the most huge and horrible thing in history. Um, I take a third case, go down below. The strangest of all, because it involves the one real objection to the faith. The one real objection to the Christian religion is simply that it's one religion. The world is a big place full of very different kinds of people. Christianity is one thing com- confined to one kind of people. It began in Palestine did has practically stop with Europe. I was duly impressed with this argument in my youth, and I was much drawn towards the doctrine often preached in ethical societies. I mean the doctrine that there is one great unconscious church of all humanity founded on the omnipresence of the human conscience. Creeds, it was said, divided men, but at least morals united them. Now let me stop with this because it seems to me it's a prevalent issue in our age. Um, What's the problem here? Can anybody put in your own words what Chesterton is? He's saying there are lots of people who think the fault with Christianity is that it appeals to one. He uses the example of an altar, say it's got an altar and it appeals to one group of people. Um, But um, a a moral code is common to all people. Socrates, Buddha, Confucius. There is this natural goodness, and all of us have it. If Christianity would just reduce itself to that, everybody would get along. But as a matter of fact, it has a creed, and that creed divides some people from others. Can anybody elaborate on this or put it in your own words? What's the issue here? Because I think it's still a very prevalent one. People still say it today follow the golden rule, and everything will be okay. What's wrong with you, people who believe in an altar or sacraments or priests. Um, What's the problem with that? I found that the very people who said that mankind was one church from Plato to Emerson were the very people who said that morality had changed altogether and that what was right in one age was wrong in another. So as soon as they take this position, it changes. If I say for an altar, I was told that we needed none. For men our brothers gave us clear oracles and one creed, their universal customs and ideals. I found it was their daily taunt against Christianity, that it was the light of one people that had left all others in the dark. We hear that today constantly. Christians are anachronistic, they belong to a past, we could only get rid of these creeds and move forward. We'd have a peaceful society. Their chief insult to Christianity was actually their chief compliment to themselves, and there seemed to be a strange unfairness about their relative insistence on the two things. They believed in what they wanted, but if somebody said, "We want an altar," they would say, "Are you out of your mind?" Um, that belongs to a, it's a relic. It belongs to an outdated path. What's the Can somebody flesh this out in a language that's not Chesterton? What's the issue here? Fred, you...
2: Well, to me, it's it's a lot of what we see today. There are a lot of people out there who are criticizing Christianity, the Catholic Church, for a variety of reasons, and and I think what Chesterton is trying to point out is that if you listen to what they're saying, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of contortion on what a Christian or what a Catholic believes, and you know they 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 try to use that against us i mean maybe a, maybe a good example is birth control versus the right of life you got a group of people out there who are criticizing the catholic church because of our our belief in the right to life and their argument for that is that you know women have the right to to control their their bodies to make their decisions, and you know, there's a conflict there with well, you know, doesn't shouldn't a, shouldn't a living, breathing child have the right to to live? I mean, there's just there's you know, there's all kinds of of conflict, I guess, out there in terms of people who are trying to rationalize. or are trying to emotionally control their audience and the arguments that they use are are not factual or are, are in conflict with you know what what we believe and I think I think Justin is just trying to point out that when you when you listen to some of those arguments you can you can you can quickly find fault in in what they're saying and you know realize that um, the, the you know the Christian the Christian faith deals with that in whether it's you know his point of the Apostles' Creed or in you know our fundamentals. I guess the the challenge I've got with all of this is <laughs> yeah you know, I, I feel like the church is faltering a little. Um, you know I've been reading a lot of Franklin Graham lately. And it seems like he's doing a better job of of supporting Christianity than than Pope Francis is. And Did I mean, it's just, it? uh Graham? you know, it's it's. <laughs> sometimes I feel like Don Quixote out there fighting windmills. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yes. You know? Yeah,
2: and I mean, you look at you, you you go to church and you look around. There's a lot fewer people in church these days than than there used to be. And yeah. I look at our whole group here. What are there? Four or five of us, you know, we just to be like twenty-five. I, you just, you just. Sometimes I feel like we're losing the battle. And what I find amazing about Chesterton is somehow he managed to maintain his humor through all of this. <laughs> and I, I find myself struggling to
0: do that. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear. I mean, for all of us, I'm sure. What a what a good thing to say. Mark, what are you, are you? You were? Did you have something? Looked like you.
3: No, oh, no no! Francis is the anti-pope. I'm sorry, he's a friggin' Jesuit. <laughs> that's all. That's
0: my only comment. I know good Jes. Don't do that. Um, who's this guy, Fred? What's Grant, What's his name? i have not. What am I missing here? Franklin
2: Graham. He's Billy Graham's son.
0: Oh, so non-Catholic.
2: He's a Baptist.
0: Oh wow! 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 Wow!
2: But I hear him out there. Saying the things that I wish Pope Francis was saying, that, and I, I think I've said this before, and I don't want to dwell on it, but I mean there there are some fundamental beliefs associated with the Catholic Church, and I don't hear anybody out there defending them these days. No. Yeah. Every once in a while, a, you know, Bishop Barron, I think I think he's doing a pretty good job of it. Um, but I, you know, the, where are where are all the Catholics? I, I can't. I mean, you have you have people out there, you know, basically blistering what we believe in. And I, where, right? Where where are all the? You asked once, where are all the men? My question is, where are all, all the Catholics? Catholics
0: what, yeah. <laughs> no, are they after, no. It's funny. You know.
2: Yeah. reiterating what we fundamentally believe yeah. in.
0: Where are all the fighters? I'm, we're going to get to this. It, it's the, the other book that I started that, until all this turned me on my head, but uh, it's a book in which I'm setting the fundamentals world against the Catholic. And one of the fundamental questions that I'm asking in that book is, where are all the Catholic artists today? But um, all, I have to pay attention to this Graham. Barbara, did you have something to add to this? <clears throat> Wait. By the way, I think we're. I mean, anybody who's in a position of identifying himself with Don Quixote is in good company. No, I'm saying that really seriously. Just, you know, the Picasso painting. If you guys have been to our house, it's, it's that Don Quixote. Father Flynn once put down um, Picasso, and, and I wanted to make a point of taking him to that picture because, you know, Picasso was a modern, and but there's. He's got this one, I don't know if you guys know the, paint, the painting, but it's a stick figure. And if you look at the stick figure of, of um, Coyote and Sanchez, Sancho Panza, um, they're just broken lines. And what I see when I look at that picture is a, is a broken, no, he's on his
2: horse.
0: It was a broken horse. Yeah, it's a bro- yeah, a broken horse. He's on his horse. He's not quitting. He's going on. But the figure just ex- expresses perfectly the sense of being wounded and broken and you know and so for me the picture is one of the loveliest modern pictures of hope and you know in a broken world that I know of. But anyway, I love Don Kidd. Barbara, go ahead, sorry.
1: Um, I think when you ask the question about where are all the Catholics and why aren't we out there defending our faith, part of it is a pervasive feeling that if we just act like Catholics, everybody will get the picture. So even, you know, even for me, I'm, I have two children who left the faith in their teens and do not want to talk about it, um, you know. And so the only way I feel like I can connect with them as far as spiritual health is concerned is by being the best I can be. (laughs) But for the most part, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid that says you don't confront people who no longer believe. Out of my whole family, I think I might be the only person who's left practicing Catholic. Uh, And I have a big family. so. I don't know where that came from but I think it needs to change I think we need to confront um, that people just don't want to talk about it because they don't want you to convince them and they don't even want to realize exactly what it is they want what they believe they just want to not have to be responsible to believe anything anymore. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, my, my take on that is a little bit different. And, I mean, it, it's, obviously it's a complex problem, but my own sense of it is in our world today, because of the nature of um, the political structure, the um, judicial, the juridical structure of our culture, that the, the fundamental principle of America is um, freedom of choice. That's behind the abortion movement. I mean the fundamental principle of the of the Supreme Court is freedom of choice. If that's true a woman can do whatever she wants and whatever reason she gives will be right. She'll never be wrong. Free, free choice will make it that way. So the fundamental principle that people grow up on in our culture today is freedom of choice. You can, you're free to choose. If Nobody has the right to impose something different on you. If they do, they're bad. So most people don't, today don't like being confronted, be, because to be confronted implies you might be wrong. That runs so contrary to the modern notion of democracy. I, I mean, I think it's horribly flawed, but my own take on it is closer to that that, that, that the fundamental principles driving America today are subjectivism, relativism, a belief in the private will, you know, the majority. and um, I, I want to go on. Fred, I want to get back just one um, one quick thing. I don't know that I've recommended this book to you all. Um, there's a book called "I really would," f- particularly in light of what everybody is saying. There's a book called "Fun Is Not Enough" by a priest named Canavan. Um, to, he 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 predates Baron, and in some ways, to me, he's the prototype. He's the he's the one who led the Baron. I think he's sharper than Baron. He's much tougher, and he's better at going to first principles. He's he's just he, whenever he makes an it's always three-page articles, they're all brief. Whenever he makes an argument, whether he's dealing with a book or a movie or a lecture or an address or a President's State of the Union or a statement by a bishop, whatever he's criticizing, he will take and present that, whatever it is, and take it to a principle. So it's like St. Thomas. You, you never come away without understanding exactly what's wrong with that sort of thing. So, it's not somebody just criticizing somebody. He's really good at it. And by the way, Fred, just an incidental note here he's Jesuit. <laughs> <laughs> that was Mark that that I want to go on. <laughs> but that
1: was Mark who
0: made that comment. The who? Mark? Mark? No, what? No, I think it was. Mark said. Uh, oh, was it you? No, Francis I thought. Is the,
1: Francis is the. No, end. I think,
0: I, I think it was. Uh, no,
3: it was me who can't stand Jesuits.
0: Oh. it was mark not me oh. the
3: pope has a picture of judas being taken up into heaven in his
0: office <laughs> okay. let's go on let's go on He's an <laughs> yeah, yeah, <I> <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was so articulate
0: mark <laughs> no, all, we all understood it very well the picture spoke a thousand words um quickly um beyond that he says one of the other problems dealt with a family that critics looked at the church as an oppressive force on the family. Um, and and yet um, it it did all of these things to reinforce the role of the family. What's interesting in all of one, in every one of these things is you can see a certain line of argument in the world at large, so they would be antagonistic to the family. So for example, if the church took a position opposing abortion, they say it's opposing the family because you're taking away the right of a woman. So indirectly, you're undermining, compromising a woman's place, whatever she chooses to do with it. But he's saying it's actually that um, the church, one of the great defenders of the family. The problem is, and he doesn't quite put it this way, is that very often the values that a culture takes, even when they're using the language of the family, will be antithetical to it, just as it is an abortion. You know, when when they defend a woman's right to her own body, I mean, I've got all sorts of questions. Um, does, she, does she not give up some of that right when she has sex with a man? Rape is a different case, and it should be treated differently. But if a woman has consensual and sex and a child comes out of it, then there's somebody else involved with her body. How, how we can dissociate that, to me, is incoherent. And more than that, whatever is conceived in that child is not something other than human. It's not a frog, it's not an alien, it's it's a human being. So there's all sorts of arguments, but when they present the, the pro-abortion stance, they'll present it as if they're affirming some good. The problem is they make that good absolute and don't bring in other things, like a woman's choice. Here, let me go on, because we've got... I want to get to the... Um... um He says, a few pages beyond, Paganism declared that virtue was in a balance. Christianity declared it was in a conflict, the collision of two passions apparently opposite. Of course, they were not really inconsistent, but they were such that it's hard to hold simultaneous. Let's follow for a moment the clue of the martyr and the suicide and take the case of courage. No quality has ever been so much addled, so has so much addled the brains and tangled the definitions of merely rational sages. Courage is almost a contradiction in term. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same will save it. Um, a soldier surrounded by enemies, if he's to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for a living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he would be a suicide. One of, the, one of the, on the next page, he takes another instance with modesty and he says Christians have made modest, like all these things, it takes one virtue and separates from, from another. He says in the matter of modesty, um, it deals with a balance between mere pride and mere prostration. The average pagan, like the average agnostic, would merely say that he was content with himself but not instantly self-satisfying. This is a manly, rational position, but it's open to the objection we noted against the compromise between optimism and pessimism. That is the resignation of Matthew Arnold. It was Matthew Arnold's appeal. Barbara, that for me, Chesterton's description of, of Arnold and that the importance of that term, speaks more to me about what's going on in our world. Because I, you know I've said this in, from lots of different perspectives. I think Catholics have given into. to it. I mean, one of the reasons I think they're not as outspoken as I think they've become more Protestant. The Protestant world made an accommodation to the world, it gave to the world, it stands in a compromised position. Chesterton's answering that and he says one of the faults of the modern world is this compromise between optimism and pessimism, the resignation of Matthew That is, if you grow up a Calvinist, um, you grow up with the idea that some men are saved, some men are damned, it's inexorable, you can't change it, if you're among the saved, what do you do? It, I mean, I, I know Calvin can argue, well, the proof of that is what you do with it, but in the modern world, in, in our human nature, what we see is that's not true at all. If people believe they're saved, they have less reason for doing anything. They become resigned. If people believe they're damned, they're resigned. The tendency of the modern world is to go, it is what it is. I think that spirit of resignation is deadly it takes away any reason for reform, for making things better. Remember his principle has always been you have to love something enough um, um, to want to do something with it, um, take a risk. But the, uh, the, the problem with modesty is that it's, it's taken by itself. He says that if, if modesty isn't set next to conviction, the problem is you go along thinking we're asked to be sheep. Here, put put in the context of Christ. We're supposed to turn our, our cheeks. Does, does that mean being a sheep in the sense of being modest and not speaking up? No, because Christ himself accepted his crucifixion never did not speak up. He always spoke up. He made enemies everywhere. So modesty shouldn't be kept by itself. It should be combined with convictions. We have to stand up question is, can we do it in, let's say, in the spirit of being with Christ? There are lots of people who stand up in ways that aren't very Christ-like. So once again, it's just taking another, um, another virtue and showing that it has to be set next to something else for it to fulfill itself. He wants to take charity, take another case, the complicated question of charity. He goes on and makes an argument, and then he says, Christianity came in here as before. It came in startling with a sword and clove one thing from another. Because sometimes, I mean, I, we hear this all the time. Christ says forgive, so we've got people forgiving murderers and putting them out on the street the next day as if there were nothing to deal with. I don't think that's, we've, I've talked about this certainly ad nauseum. Christ did nothing that didn't fulfill the law. And by fulfilling the law, he wasn't trying to fulfill the 600 observances of the Jews. He was fulfilling his Father's commandments. The challenge for a Christian is to bring justice into the world with a supernatural charity, a love that knows no bounds. He says it divided the crime from the criminal. There's that sword again. The criminal we must forgive unto seventy times seven. The crime we must not forgive at all. It was not strong enough that slaves who stole wine inspired partly anger and partly kindness. We must be much more angry with theft than before, and yet much kinder to thieves than before. There was room for wrath and love to run wild. The more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. He's been saying this over and over again. We don't want a balance because if we do, or the wrong kind of balance, we're back with pagans. We want a love of justice that we want, we want a gentleness beyond an extreme. Remember he said extreme pessimism, extreme optimism, both of them at full board. We want a a gentleness to the nth degree and we want a fierceness to the nth degree we have to bring both of those things together. Um, So he said when he looked out he found people who whom the church admired because of their gentleness, who they praised as saints, Saint Saint Francis. The church found warriors like Saint Joan who was saintly because of her fierceness that she risked her life the way she did. all that the church did was to prevent either of these good things, whatever those two things are that stand next to each other as complements to each other was to prevent either of those good things from ousting the other they existed side by side, he gives a long example the Quakers, Tolstoy, the monks um It is constantly assured, especially in our Tolstoyan tendencies. Tolstoy loved a peace. He wanted the peace everywhere. Um, This is such a good example, especially in our Tolstoyan tendencies, that when the lion lies down with the lamb, the lion becomes lamb-like. But that's brutal annexation and imperialism on the part of the lamb. That is simply the lamb absorbing the lion instead of the lion eating the lamb. The real problem is... Can the lion lie down with the lamb and still retain his royal ferocity? Christ was a king. There were times when he was absolutely severe. That's the problem the church attempted. That's the miracle she achieved. People today, here's another answer. I mean, it's partly another response to your, I really think today, Barbara, people are given to resignation. They're afraid to be angry. Because to be angry means you're bad. Um, I, I maintain this. I mean, Aristotle, we've talked about this forever. Anger is not um, a sin. Anger is the rectificatory, the rectifying virtue. If you look at the two trajectories of our emotions from love to joy and hate to sadness, those are the emotions in their ordered trajectories. Anger is the only one between those two trajectories because it works for both. There's two two trajectories of our emotions, love of the good and we strive to get to it, to know a happiness once we attain that good, or hate of those things that get in the way of our leading to it, or getting the the end we want, and end up in sorrow. Anger is used to protect ourselves in both instances, to answer those things that are in the way, to get them out of the way, to overcome our fears, you know, to get evils out of the way. So that we, who who can deal with an evil evil without getting someone angry? Christ said to Peter, whom he loved, "Get behind Satan." People are afraid to be angry today because they think in being. That's absolutely Protestant. Meekness, timidness. Anger is not a sin. Wrath is a sin. Rage is a sin. Anger's not. So over and over again he's he's saying the great struggle for us in the Christian world is to keep these things together full board. It's when we become um, arrested, if I can put it, by a by a respectable world um, that we um, we struggle with this and don't do very well at it. We become too concerned about being polite um, disturbing other people not causing problems not creating scenes not making people we don't want to be disliked you know I mean those I think those are for me at least those are m- more at issue why we are not a Catholic world is not standing up the way Fred was describing I don't know how much of that's our leadership I mean I I mean I think Francis is it's really interesting because Pope John, to me, was one of the, I mean, this is, you know, I, I know popes through history, but I was alive when he was alive. To me, I, it's hard to imagine a better pope. He was such a good pope.
1: John
0: Paul. Yeah, and John Paul was one of the most gentle people I knew, but he also, you know, I, it's hard for me to see him getting angry, but he had he had no scruples about taking hard stands in charity, you know. Okay, the, well, let me stop for quick. I want to get to the eternal revolution because it's, it's really important, but any thoughts on the paradoxes of Christianity? If I can put this simply, the title of the chapter gives it away. One of the things that the church does is move away from, say, Aristotelian or Platonic world of extremes, that it's in a balance. Um, he's saying that the church acknowledges that balance but it's also saying it has to go farther in both directions that that leaves us with a mystery in the middle i'd say back in the mean but it's a mean that's radically transformed christ was always there christ christ was there gentle severe but never wrathful or you know cowardly he always stood up he always spoke the truth um he was fearless. He taught. Um, he went against all the religious leaders of his time. He took on the, gen- you know, the Gentiles, the Jewish order. So.
1: The best image. Hmm? The best image in that whole chapter.
0: Can you hear, Doc? Can you guys hear? Can you speak up, Doc? I think
1: one of the best images in that whole chapter is that...
0: The paradoxes?
1: Yeah. Is that the church... Doesn't want pink. It wants red, <laughs> together with white, but no pink. Um, so you have to have you have to have the two opposites
0: without canceling each other.
1: Without out. blending or yeah. canceling each other out. Yeah.
0: I think that's probably one. I mean, one response to your, you know, your concern, the concern you expressed earlier, Barm, that you know, why, why. Um, because I think people are honestly afraid to be fully red or fully white that... To, to, to I mean the best way that I can put it is to be fully red the way Chesterton does. Chesterton doesn't back away from anything. But I, I don't know of a more charitable man. He takes on every issue but his sense of humor in it and his mirth are profound. The question is can we confront a family member pretty seriously in a spirit of love, can we take a hard stand and do it in a good way? I just think that's harder. It's much easier to blow up or not do anything. It's much harder to do something and learn to control ourselves and bring something better to what we're saying. I just think that's a much harder thing for all of us. Barb, go ahead. Did you have something to respond?
1: Um, just that that is um i don't i mean i don't know how to do that yet i'm still working on it and still praying about it but um at some point i need to do that and you know as far as wanting to get along and not making waves i'm you know i'm the picture of that and it's only when something really gets me that I say, uh-uh, no, no, this, is, this isn't going to work. But it has to be pretty serious stuff. Mm-hmm. So maybe I just need to change the way I'm um, acting toward things that are wrong.
0: What do you mean, maybe?
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm off now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't get, don't get wrathful at me, Barbara. You get angry at me if you want. Just I just want to remind you. Wait, hold on. I'm laughing at you. Because when you started your comment, you, the opening part of your comment was not the same as you're in. The opening part of your comment was to acknowledge, I need to do that better, and I'm not quite there yet. So, and I, I just think that's, I, I think it's not easy for all of us. I, I mean, I, that's something I've struggled with in my life. Um, I think anybody who cares about these things has got to struggle. That's, that's why the next chapter is called Eternal Revolution. You know, one of, the, one of the things he ends on is that we have to be watchful. We have to be on guard. And I think, me personally, I think everything in our culture puts us to sleep. Comfort, security, wealth, no problems. We have problems in our life and we get upset. You know, because we shouldn't have problems. Um. Fred, go ahead. You had something.
2: It it might just be me, but I guess I had an eternal longing after reading Chesterton. And maybe I should wait till the last, the next chapter, but. To me, I, when I hear Shesterton's description of the church, um, I feel like, well, maybe back in John John the twenty third, that was true. John the uh, second. Maybe John Paul the second. But I I look around today and I I just don't see it. Yeah. I don't yep. I don't see that that same strength. I guess that same willingness to step out and say. There is a red. There is a white. Yep. Looks to me like today the church is very pink.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of people I, share your we can feelings around really. with
2: individuals, and yeah. I and I hear you know different different thoughts. But when you when when the when the church speaks, it, it sounds to me very pink.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. Nope.
2: When I read Chesterton there is a great longing there for for the church that he's describing versus the one I see today.
0: Yeah. Um, I just got a couple of comments and then I want to get to the, just to at least open, begin the uh, um, eternal revolution because I want to get us on. A couple of things. One is, you know from our reading, you know better than most, um, that the church under Dante was not a good church. He excoriated Boney, um, Bonaventure, put him in hell. The, the, historically, the, I mean, really, I'm saying this really honestly, you know, that's that for lots of people would be a reason for leaving the church. That would never be a reason for me leaving the church. The church has gone through awful periods, I, and I think one of the difficulties of our age is that we had, we had an extraordinary pope, I, I think, or at least in my opinion, John Paul, who, who took orthodox stands, but with a, a, an encouraging gentleness that that want that made people want to enter the church, and I, I really believe Benedict did a good job in doing what you're talking. He was more ready to take stands, but he alienated intellectuals because intellectuals didn't want that. I, I I was really troubled when he resigned. That that really bothered me. That I I don't know. I still don't know what was behind it, but but I know that the intellectual or a large groups or portions of the intellectual part of the church were not at ease with him and people who were not intellectual didn't like him because he was so intellectual. Um, He wasn't pastoral enough. John Paul was pastoral. I wish he'd stayed because he was so much more tough-minded. But just don't ever forget, I mean, um, Thomas More, whom we read or watched a movie, um, Man for All Season and um, Thomas Beckett. There were periods of real corruption in the church, real weakness, We've just gone through a pedophile crisis. That's, you know, I, I mean, I, how many people left the church? I don't know. That would never be a reason for me leaving the church. Corruptions are there, but what it, what the church asks for, what Christ asks for, excuse me, in periods like that, is for people to step up. So one of the things we do, Fred Chancellor, is write. <laughs> the way Graham does from a Catholic position that one of the things we can do is defend the church in a good way in order to draw people into it again to say there's something here worth fighting for that you're not going to find anywhere else in the world. Even, so even if it, even if we're not strong in that today we can criticize the church. It, it should be criticized but I don't think that's a reason for leaving or that's a reason for getting active Particularly with somebody who's gifted and speaking out, even if the form it has to take is written. <laughs> Let's go on. Let's go on. Are you watching your time? I am, I am. <laughs> Francis, I'll be grateful. I'll be grateful for any help you give me right now. <laughs>
3: Actually, one point, Bob. You, you go,
0: careful. you go. I'm sorry, go ahead.
3: Our current pope is doing his best to get rid of
0: the people we need. <laughs> that's still not going to see. I will. Yeah, I will never hear. It. I mean, yes, yes, yes. Donald. Well, every one of my answers there is That's a reason for, you know, the, because the people who don't stay. I mean, that's like
3: chasing the. No, 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 no. I mean the cardinals, the bishops that are worth a damn. He is
0: blackballing them, writing them out. But I'm saying, them. I'm saying that's a reason for those people to become martyrs. This is an age for saints. I really mean that. What, whatever's going on there, however bad it gets, the the the, okay. the example for us is still Christ. Whatever he's doing to anybody, it can't be whining and crying. It has to be, they have got to step forward to live Christ. My argument all along is that our church has become too corrupted, too soft, too, too modern, too liberal, too ease. And instead of producing... So one of the side effects of that is so when people face something like what you're talking about instead of standing up with a voice and making clear like Christ they're quieted or runner. I mean that's that's a sign that there's something not good in the church that needs to be purged. That's not Fran- France. Question. him is a leader. People still have to step up wh- wherever they are. Dante wrote a poem <laughs>
3: <laughs> there's a lot of people that have stepped up, that have been censored by their bishops, that have been taken out of parishes by these bishops, that have been admonished by our anti-pope. So, there, yes, everybody needs to stand up. You are absolutely right, but there are bigger problems at work in this
0: no, church. I don't, right? my, and I'm, I
3: mean, don't leave it. I'm not going to leave it. I,
0: yeah. No. Know. No. I, no I, 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 I But there's that,
3: bigger problems at work
0: here. Yeah. No. I'm agreeing, but my but my answer is different from yours. Because even, even if the um, church media closes down on them, there's a public media that oh, would be only too happy to hear those criticisms. There's just, the people, my point is, all of those are occasions, graces, that will test a person's faith. That, 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 and the, the end result may be a martyrdom. You know? Um, but if somebody isn't prepared to do that, then it's a serious question what we're doing with our faith. And, we can't just. We just cannot speak this stuff. It has to be lived.
3: Well, my my mother always said it never tests your faith. It always tests your patience. <laughs> right? Your faith is unshakable.
0: Well, it? I think it. I think it tests it, a lot of people's so faith.
3: Some people get their faith shaken. They need help. But generally speaking, if you've got faith, it's that curse that will never go away. Right? You're always going to have it somehow, even if you try to get rid of it.
0: You yeah. Can't. No. Anybody, anybody who takes faith seriously, yeah. So. I mean, lots of people just get complacent and they go to church and they'll die that way. Um, lots of people. That, that's. Let's go on because we've got. I've got five minutes. Um, this is a huge thing that we're all talking about, and I'm glad. I'm glad that. And I'm particularly glad to see, some of you roiled up here. Um, no, no, there's real cause. There's real cause. Um, here, quick. He begins eternal revolution by recounting what he's just argued. And he says, When a Christian is pleased, he is in the most exact sense frightfully pleased. His pleasure is frightful. Christ prophesied the whole of Gothic architecture in that hour when nervous and respectable people, such people as now object to barrel organs. He's constantly referring to that respectable order and indirectly the harm that it does objected to the shouting of the gutter snipes in Jerusalem. He said, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Under the impulse of his spirit arose, like a clamorous cult chorus, the facades of the medieval cathedrals, thronged with shouting faces and open mouths, the gargoyles. The prophecy has fulfilled itself, the very stones cry out. That's a beautiful image. What a stunning image. What he's saying is that the, the medieval cathedrals, if you look at them, are an expression of Christ making that condemnation. If these things be conceded, though only for argument, we may take up where we left it in the thread of the thought of the natural man, called by the Scotch, the old man, that is the old Adam, the fallen man. We can ask the next question so obviously in front of us. Some satisfaction is needed even to make things better. But what do we mean by making things better? How do we do that? A page beyond, he says, we cannot then get the ideal from nature, and as we follow here the first in natural speculation, we must have our own vision, but the attempts of most moderns to express it are highly vague. He gives a number of um, categories that define areas of um, efforts on the part of modern, modern people to make their world better. Um, and um, I, I'm just going to list them, even though they're abstractions, because we don't have time to go into them. Um, the first one he names is the clock, and what he means by that is time, that people use time as a way of understanding what they're going to do. How can anyone be up to date? A date has no character. He talks about material metaphors, using high and low when they're useless, doing nothing at all, resigning. The theory of evolution or progress means we're always changing the vision. If things are always evolving, they're always changing. He makes the point and says it's one of the major points that Christ left in his church when he left it behind: is there has to be a fixed creed. If things are constantly, if you keep shifting a target, you can't hit it, um, and it doesn't guide you. If you keep shifting an end, you won't get to where you're going. Where you're going, you don't even know you have to have a fixed end, you have to have a fixed creed for there to be any progress at all. Um, And then he gives a number of um, silly examples. And then he says that there are three things absolutely essential for any real reform to take place. Remember the whole question here is we have to feel satisfied, we have to love the world. But if we do love it, we have to love it enough to see it change become something better. So we have to ask things of it. How do we do that? So he's just named some of them. He says there are three things that are necessary. The first one, he repeats again, an ideal must be fixed. You can't find it in nature, and pantheism, evolution, co- modern cosmic religions, things that do away with dogmas. Most people look at dogmas as bad because they hold them accountable. They want to get rid of them. They want to have things their own way. They want to make the world in their own image. So the ideal must be fixed, it must be composite, it must be a combination of things. You must be humble enough to wonder and haughty enough to defy. You have to be humble enough to love something and and proud enough to fight for it. If you're only humble, you won't stand up, you'll disappear. And the third thing is, he says, we need watchfulness. He said the tendency of all things is to fall back, to slide back. We're in a fall. The tendency is to get comfortable. He has some strong criticism of socialists and socialism. I want to look at those, but I don't want to do this rushing. I really want to look at those because it's it's a serious issue in our time. Most of the reformers coming from the left who are the ones who are most adamant about changing things, who want to change, Uh, um, argue in the direction of socialism. What's wrong with that? Um, And finally he says that one of the things that would most help us is really what he's saying is a sense of humor. He says, seriousness is not a virtue. Satan fell by the force of gravity. Satan couldn't laugh at himself. So there are things we can do for ourselves to make us better. There are things we can do for those we love to help them become better. There are things that we can do together to help us become better ourselves. There are things we can do with our world to help it become better. Just as Christ did. And I want to say on that note, to finish on this note, um, remember remember um, because imagine how the, the disciples would have felt with this. I'm, so, I'm really serious about this, because I believe it's a temptation all of us fall into. The end of Christ's life seemed a failure. He was the God, the Messiah, the Christ, who'd come to save Israel. On the road to Emmaus, um, one of the men makes that point, that this is the one that would come but he was crucified. So all of the hopes of the Jews, and, and they're large, in a large way responsible for his crucifixion, um, all the expectations, the hopes of the Jews were dashed. He failed. There was no consolation. The disciples met in an upper room. They disappeared, they hid, they ran. Their leader that they depended so much on was gone, dead, crucified, humiliated held up for ridicule by everybody. So whatever we say about reform and how important it is and what we do, don't forget that. Remember that when we did um, um, Faulkner's Go Down Moses, remember, it's one of the questions I asked at the end. I mean, we're long beyond that right now, but remember one of the questions I asked at the very end, and I think it was um, the, the Go Down Moses story. dealt wasn't Delton? it was Go Down Moses. Ike learns that his efforts to reform the corruption of his land, you remember that he gave up his inheritance. Those of you who remember the Go Down Moses, he gave up his inheritance. and We had that argument, that debate, because that's the the major debate that academics haggle over. Should Ike have given up the land? Lots of them say no. He should have stuck it out and did things. He could have done things. By giving it up, he turned it over to Kaz, um, who did nothing with it. At the end of Go Down Moses, He's on a hunting trip with Kaz, and that Negro woman comes with their child to give him a note. And Ike realizes that what he'd done seemed to be for nothing, because the old sin, misogyny, incest, that his great-grandfather had committed, was repeated again. The Kaz had married this woman, or had sex with her, didn't marry her, had an illegitimate child. So one of the points I remember making is that he had no consolation. He, he couldn't he couldn't look at his actions and say I succeeded. Success is one of the dri- success is one of the driving forces of America it seems to confirm our goodness. That's very Protestant because the measure of it's like the Jews a person's wealth was a measure of God's favor. That's very Old Testament. A person's success is very often a measure of his being saved. That was certainly true for the founding generation in Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Um, I could take no consolation. His life seemed to be a, his, the most important choice he made, in his life seemed to be a failure. So, at the very end, the Jews had no consolation. They couldn't turn to Christ and say, "We're vindicated." All the accusations, the shame that people have heaped on us, you know, the Jews, their criticism of us, all, they're all misguided. Look, look, we won. We won. They, they can't say that. Um, so they go through this period of a horrible disillusionment. And then you've got the axe and Peter standing up. And then you've got really the beginnings of the church with Peter standing up, calling people to Christ. To live a different life. Um, so in a in an in an age that's, you know, rocked with failures, particularly in the church, it, it leaves us all with the same sort of things we've been reading about since the very beginning. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, um, Thomas Becket, Father Zosimov. Um, um, what's his what's the yacht in his end. And what's the boy's name not Eva and... It starts with a K no Alyosha Alyosha, Alyosha Billy Bud you know um, hung so um, so in the midst of all these failures we still we're living in a comfortable world a world that encourages success and Wealth and comfort and, um, and so much of what Christ is calling us to is just the contrary. So Chesterton's taking that all on. Um, and remember, one of the last things he says, one of the last principles is be watchful. Um, um, be watchful and, and seriousness is not a virtue, to have a sense of humor. that that very often our humor can be an expression of our hope when we're dealing with hard things. We're asked to be watchful and be hopeful. Be glad. Be hopeful. Christ prepared the way. So next week we'll pick up um, Eternal Revolution and, and go to the... What's after that? I've forgotten. What's after authority and the adventure no romance romance of orthodoxy romance he's gonna make the state that people think orthodoxy is the stale unexcited um, course of action and what he says is that there is nothing in the world more exciting or more full of adventure than orthodoxy trying to live these things is no easy task. I think we've all admitted that tonight. I'm I'm with Barbara, that that's a something that we have to be vigilant about. Work on every day, all day long. Okay. Um, all of you guys have a good week. Be safe, um, p- particularly take efforts to stay f- safe from this virus. It's it's, it's pounding on our doors right now, so all of you guys be safe. Um, okay, um, you guys have a good week, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.